Do not adjust your electronic device. I am David Crabb, and this is Stories in Session, but this is a Stories in Session hot take. Hot takes are going to pop up a few times each season as I sit down with one of my favorite storytellers to talk shop and chew the fat. There's no theme. There's not a lot of bells and whistles. Uh, just good, old-fashioned convos with some very talented people who tickle my fancy. Welcome to this episode of Stories in Session Hot Take. Okay, so you have you have to hold that. All right, can you hear me constant. now? I can totally hear you now. Okay, good. This is like sweaty balls. <laughs> Today's special ingredient is Sweat. salt. <laughs> Today on Hot Take, we are gabbing with seven-time mop winner Sandy Marks. She has performed at every storytelling show in the tri-state area and beyond. Uh, she's working on a book and a solo show, and her hair, which is regularly on fleek. It's amazing. Are the kids still saying that on fleek? Is it a thing? Uh, she's funny as hell, kind as can be, and one of the most driven storytellers I've ever had the pleasure of watching, teaching, and sharing the stage with. Welcome to Stories in Session, Hot Take with Sandy Marks. Hi, Sandy Marks. <laughs> Hi, David Crabb. My Hi. Yoda. Did you just call me Yoda? Uh, I did call you Yoda because you are my Yoda. So, Sandy, how did we meet? Um, we met because I had a wonderful writing teacher, Sarah Barron, oh. who I adore. My She's host. Oh, oh. memoirist. Oh, oh, oh. I love great. her. And yeah. I took a writing workshop with her. And I told her that I thought because I wasn't a grammarian and I wasn't really good at <laughs> syntax and punctuation, that what I really wanted to do was speak stories, tell stories, not just write them down and have them published so people could say she's a moron, but actually tell a story where I could actually get across my point yeah. without feeling like I'm guarded or insecure because my writing skills aren't up to snuff. So she said, you might want to consider taking a storytelling workshop. And I looked on uh, the People's Improv Theater website because that was the only sort of listing I could find that actually offered these classes. And there you were, and I didn't know you, and I didn't even, it was just a leap of faith. I didn't do any research. I just thought, well, I like his name. I'm signing up. <laughs> and I just said, oh, I think the one thing I did do that was sort of research related is I looked up one of your um, moth stories or videos that you had on YouTube. Yeah. So I got to actually watch you. And as soon as I saw you on that video, I thought, oh, my God. I'm like, in love. You're like, that guy, that, that guy's not a mook. He's not a terrible punk. Oh, my God. I was in love. And so then I asked Sarah, and she said, oh, my God, I love him. I know him. He's amazing. Yes, you absolutely have to take that class. And that was it. And That's so funny. Up, just Sa like that. So Sarah Barron is like the, Sarah Barron, the way that she led you to me, Sarah Barron led me to the moth. I mean, I was already doing the moth. Isn't that amazing? But Sarah was so supportive of me when she would host at the Bitter End when I would go and tell. And I'm not sure but I think she was very supportive of the idea because she was moving to England of me taking over the spot and I started hosting at the moth uh, in her absence when yeah, we lost her to Angerland it was very sad that one of the first times I had ever gone to a moth she was the host and I thought oh my god not only is she warm and lovely and a great host she has such a great way of making each storyteller feel kind of embraced no matter what their story was and she never took like too much spotlight from each one of them which is a really hard thing to do when you're up there hosting and you're yeah. so talented and you know people get up and tell a story and she was able to make them 
sort of the highlight, not herself. Because I've seen other hosts not do that. But she also knew, too, like if, if, if like the story went south or things went bad, she has that great technique where, I mean, she's so funny. She's so in the moment. You really feel like she's just talking to you over like your eighth Manhattan. That's like right. she's just chilling with you. Yeah. She does that thing where she tells that multi-part story that you have to listen to parts for. Through. Remember how she do that? That's right. She'd yeah. tell like a four-part story. So if the storytelling went up and it was like, eek, a nightmare, or that guy's a terrible racist, or you know, whatever. She would she call would back. She would just be like, great, okay, anyway, so what happened with the guy in the penis mask? Right. And it was, it was yeah. such a great she device. She had this really good device where I think she would say something like, oh, no, I'm not going to tell you now. I will tell you later. Yeah. So she yeah. would have you in your subconscious yeah. knowing, oh, this is going to be worth waiting for. Totally. Because she's not going to tell us now, but she yeah. is going to tell us. Yeah. And I think that was one of the first lessons that I learned you know, to, as a performer was make your audience feel safe make them feel loved, and make them know that their experience is going to have, that they're going to have a beginning and a middle and end to their experience, not just yeah. the storytellers, that the audience is not going to leave there scratching their head and saying, well, what happened? What happened? Like, they're going to yeah. get it. And she always would do that. Like, she would always make sure that it's just like a really strong comedian. Like, if you ever watch, like, one of the most skilled comedians, they will call back to whatever it was, and they will get to that thing, even though you almost forgot that that's what they were talking about. Yeah. And then yeah. you re realize, oh, yes, yes. And the payoffs are always so worth it, because you know that they did all the work, but you're not really seeing them sweat through it. It seems so natural. Yeah. They just get to the thing. So, so this is interesting to me. So I'm not sure that I actually consciously realized this before. So... When you decided to start like sharing stories, you actually were going to write first. Correct. You didn't necessarily, like, you weren't on your way to storytelling no. consciously and you stopped at a memoir no. class. No. You were all about memoir and Sarah Barron. That's right. Actually was like, and now you'd heard of the moth? Well, she, Sarah was teaching a comedy writing workshop. Right. So that was the class that I had taken. And mm -hmm. I knew I was more memoir driven. So my essays were always about me. So. I love the comedy workshop, but it, and it was really perfect for yeah. me to start, but I had the best success when I would get up in her class and tell the story rather than passing them around and having other people read it because I knew it was the way I sold my story by telling it that made the story come to life because my writing was probably lacking. It was in the telling. So she had told me about the moth and I knew about the moth because I had heard them on the radio, but I had gone to Housing Works. That was my first one. Yeah. And I don't think she was the host. I think it might've been Peter or Dan uh, Kennedy. So I went with Keith and we were so new. We didn't understand how crowded it would be. We wound yeah. up on the balcony. It was super hot. We had to stand the whole time. We could barely even see the stage. And I remember seeing Adam Wade get up and tell a story. And Adam Wade was so wonderful. Yeah. And he was so human and so natural and so, like, just a dude, like an average guy. And the story had so much realness for me. And I thought, yeah, I get it. I, this is something I can do. This is something that's more in my wheelhouse because I can be you know, vulnerable and honest and genuine and not worry so much about whether or not this is a new paragraph. It's just yeah. like, you just tell the story. And yeah. then I thought, no, I'm, I'm, but I'm sort of old school in that if you want to do something well, you better learn how to do it right. And you better really take it seriously and not, uh, don't be a dabbler. And yeah. I, people used to make fun of me because I used to say my life depends on it, doing it well, but I meant it. My life, I feel like my life does depend on doing it, right? I just have a certain integrity about how I want to do it. So that's when I knew, no, I got to study this. I got to learn it. I want to know how did Adam do that how does that get done so yeah. in addition to signing up for your class I would watch videos 
like hours of videos of people that I thought were really amazing, like like Ophira. Yeah. And I would just look at those videos and say, what makes that story so great? Why do I love Diana Speckler? Why do I love Diana Speckler's story so much? You know, they really resonated because there was a real truth to it. Um, and that's when I signed up for your class and I got to that that little office space at the Pitt Theater and I was yeah. like, what am I doing here? And I felt so out of place because I was so much older than the other kids in the class and I just felt I was being judged and evaluated by them looking at me and it's that they so, probably thought, you silly housewife, why no. are you here? Well, the thing that I always remember thing. about having in the classes, you know, you're immediately, you're immediately so warm and so funny. Like everyone that meets you, like I'm just, whatever, I'm, I'm lavishing you in compliments, but they're all true. None of them are bullshit. And like the joke that me and Michelle made about you, like later, because Michelle Walson, who taught the class with me, some of my favorite memories of storytelling teaching are the cab home oh, with I bet. her. Yeah, and to she's talk so about, amazing. Like, I right, because her. like she's a great teacher, but we always yeah, have like, smart. what are we gonna do about so and so? How amazing is so and so? And we would talk about you, and our joke about you was that, you know, it was very important, at least in classes I teach, and by in Michelle's method too, that everyone give each other feedback. That right. it was a workshop, a, like a right. salon kind of element to it. And it was so funny because our joke about you was always that you'd be, even if the story didn't go well or great, yeah. right? Like if it was great, you'd pick out, this is great and I love this beat. If the story wasn't so great, you'd say something <laughs> along the lines of, uh, so one, I mean, so wonderful. I mean, look at you. Who couldn't love you? You look at your hair. You have this personality. Where did you get this top? I, you know, it's your accent that I. Yes. And you and you would you would finish talking to people. They make them feel better. They their wattage was turned up, yeah. and it's so funny that you do that because we joke about this, I but like that. the career that you came out of when you That's got into right. storytelling. Yeah. Was you were talent yeah, agent. Yeah, it was my job to shepherd these careers, help these people feel good about themselves. The best work I could do as a talent agent was making actor or make really my actors and my clients in the room feel good enough about themselves so when they show up at the audition, they are their best versions of themselves. Right. And in order for them to be their best versions, there's so much out there that's so cruel. Yeah. The very least, the people that represent them need to adore them, genuinely adore them, because yeah. otherwise, what's the point? So when they show up at those auditions, it's almost like their mom is on their shoulder saying, I know you can do this. I know you have this in you. So I still feel that way. And I, I would always find something good. And the joke around my office when I was working, I was sort of, they called me the head of HR department. Now, we didn't have a real department. It was just me. But I was usually assigned to firing people for whatever reason. But I had this way of doing it because I really genuinely like these people we had to fire. You fired Where them nice. I would make them, like they, by the time I, they left, they were like hugging me, we were making dinner plans. Oh. And the people that my partners were sitting in the other offices saying, oh my God, what did you do? Did you give them a raise? I said, no, I explained to them the situation, they understood and they're gonna get a really good job and it won't be here and they'll be fine. And it probably That's took so them till they got home to realize, wait a minute. That what bitch fired fuck, me. What the fuck <laughs> just happened? Did that bitch just fire me? But I would do it in a way, because I talk to people the way I want to be spoken to, you yeah. know? And I, they're so much easier to make people feel better about themselves, even if you have criticism for them, than making them feel badly. Life's too short. You know, we always feel insecure about something. Let's not add, let's not just pile on. You know, you don't come across in any way, shape, or form as an insecure person. And I do feel like there's a lot required of storytellers to be yeah. confident, even if it's confident in showing or being, being open about your lack of confidence, right? right? Like being totally vulnerable. You worked for years in this career, in this field, 
that's very tough oh, on, yeah. on the psyche and oh, the soul yeah, and yeah, the judge. Yeah. Whether you're an actor, I'm sure you're an agent. There's, yeah, it's hard. Oh, know, it's really hard. Like, talk to me about how did that happen that you had this career, you had your own agency, and, and you quit that, and then you're like, I want to tell, or the, at least early, yeah. write true stories. Like, how did, did you always know you wanted well, to do that? Well, what happened was when I was uh, a young person, when I wanted to be an actor and I was a dancer, um, I know this sounds like a cliche, but what I really, it's not, I don't want to really be a director, but what I really wanted to be was a stand-up comedian. That was really the, the track that I wanted to take when I was in my early 20s. And um, I, was, I tell this story where um, when I was at NYU as a drama major, I took classes in stand-up comedy, and my mother used to criticize me by saying, you're spending all that money, because she wasn't spending it. You're going to spend all that loan money on classes to learn how to be a comedian? You're not even going to be good at it. You're no, like, you're no Don Rickles. Like, that was her, like, <laughs> point of reference. And I thought, well, ironing she might be, bra. like, ironing like, in her bra, story, watching, ironing. like, Days of Our Lives. So, and I thought, well, she might be right. And, like, her own, like, we didn't have that many role models. It was Joan Rivers, Elaine Boozler. There weren't that many people out there yet. And then um, I kind of thought she might be right, and I was just too scared to do stand-up. And at the time, it was just starting to, like, really take off stand-up. So I thought the next best thing was I will date and sleep with comedians, it was like adjacent <laughs> to being a comedian. Yeah. So I was, I was like what they call, I, I don't know if I can curse on your podcast, but yeah. I was like a chuckle fucker. That's what they call yeah. that now. So I, I was like a chuckle whore. I was like sleeping with comedians because I liked them. I mean, they were my boyfriends for yeah. a couple of weeks, but whatever. But I liked them. So we would hang out at like Catch and the Improv and all those clubs, and we would sit at the bar, and I would listen to whoever was up and coming then, which was Carol Leeford, Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld, all these people that are now, you know, obviously very successful. And they would sit there and complain at the bar at the improv that they didn't get a good time on their on the lineup. They didn't get enough minutes in their set, not enough applause. You know, they were all bit, bit, bit. they were all like yeah. bitching and moaning. I'm like, oh my God, and they're already successful. I don't have a chance. There's no way. So the first segue I made was um, managing comedians like in, in improv groups, there was this group called the Broadway Local that were kind of brilliant. Um, and they were all individually very successful. It was Michael Patrick King who went on to create Sex in the City. And my friend Lisa Mendy who was on Seinfeld as a regular, she was the one who said, come see the baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Dom Irera who's still like a really successful stand-up. And they did these amazing shows that were yeah. brilliant. And so I tried to help them for a while. And then after that I realized I really needed to make a living. So I kind of segued into being an agent. And then when I was an started to be in, learning how to be an agent, I was an assistant and then an agent. I would still be funny in the office, you know, and I would tell them all my little stories, and it was a good way to get clients to sign up because they were entertained. But I that I knew that my business as an agent was to take the back seat and let my agent and uh, my clients shine. I was just the agent, and so I just kind of put it somewhere there inside, deep and buried in my heart and brain until I would be ready one day to start working again. And I really thought it would take the form of writing because I thought I was too old and kind of, you know, just it's not appropriate anymore. Who's going to want to see a middle-aged woman 
get on stage. I'm not Mrs. Maisel's, you know, like, what am I thinking? <laughs> why, why would I do that? Um, and I just felt, you know, you get to a certain age where you kind of feel invisible and I'm a lot more insecure than I seem. Um, I just, I'm very good at covering it up, but there are many situations even now after I've been doing this a while where I really do feel insignificant or invisible just because of, you know, where I am in my life at my age. But, um, I thought, you know, comedy is, is passed me by until I saw, storytellers at the moth and I thought you know what this is kind of like that only it's not punchline 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 I can actually tell a longer form story and not worry about getting laughs immediately and I have so much I want to say and I've had so many funny life experiences because I'm older this is something that I could actually do and so I thought okay this actually might work this could work um, so when I discovered the moth and I discovered storytelling is when I realized oh no there is something else that I could participate in that doesn't require to me to be under 35 years old I could do this yeah so it was really a relief almost it was so exciting and I wanted to do it well because you know there's this thing I think we all can agree that when we're young we're too immature to understand how important it is to actually get the work done either yeah. in college or grad school or you know, acting classes, you know, we don't take ourselves and our work seriously until we're mature enough to totally. understand I the stakes. I wish I could redo all my classes. It, yes. I would, oh, if I could redo I all of that, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that I would have had a scholarly career. I probably wouldn't. But the point is, is I didn't take my work seriously. I was lazy by nature. And I kept thinking, oh, I'll just get away with stuff. Yeah. Until you get to a certain age, you realize you can't get away with anything. If you're going to be really good at something, it's because you did the work. And that's well, why I decided to take your class. Well, you're like, you're, you've been so, let's see, so that class was in, what was it, two Four years ago. Yeah, it was okay. probably 2014. Yeah, so you, you were so diligent. You, you've told, in the amount of times that you've been telling stories, I feel like you've told as many stories as Adam Wade. Like, you've, yeah. you've told. Well, I have about 35 crafted I, stories. I mean, it's crazy. That's and a lot. like, you know, that work, I think, you know, naturally you have this talent. I mean, you do have this ability, you know, I, worked with you on stories and just seen you tell stories that I have no familiarity with and this thing that resonates in all of them is that you seem so present and like mm -hmm. you're riffing. You have that ability to perform a story but it just feels, and, and but when you wrap up a story, it's like, oh, well, that's totally structured, right? Like, but I, it's because you taught me how to do that too. That, I, didn't, I didn't really have a clue about how to structure it until I mean, you taught it in such a, I mean, if anyone is listening yeah. to this and interest, interested in learning how to do this, I mean, you really teach a master class and how to set it up in a simple way that everyone can understand. Mm. And if you take that to heart and then do the work yourself, it's almost foolproof yeah. to not tell a good story because of the way you set up the framework for how to tell a good story. But I think there is, I think though with so many people, there is that natural, like you just have that natural spark where training or not, like if I was gonna sit across the bar from you and strike up a conversation, I'd be like, I met this incredible woman who told me like five amazing stories, right? You've told many stories at the Moth. You've won the Moth now seven, seven times. times. Right. You've won the moth seven times. That's crazy. Doesn't seem like that much, though. I, I mean, I don't, I, know. I don't know. I think it's pretty yeah. amazing. When you when you go, so you haven't gone so much lately because you're doing all these right. amazing other things, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what is your experience of the moth as someone that has won so many times, and for every one of those, you've done a grand slam? 
what is your experience of it? Like, why do you keep going back? What do you love about it? Well, I think the original feeling that I loved it so much is maybe because my mother likes to go, used to go to Atlantic City and play, like, the one-armed slot machines. Yeah. There's this thrill about, like, scratching a lotto ticket or playing bingo or entering a raffle where you think there's so much possibility that I can win. It's like a contest. It's yeah. like a contest. I'm going to win. But what makes this even better is that you actually have to do something to merit the possibility mm -hmm. of winning. And there are, as people who go to Moth Slams know, there's a lot more at play. What order are you going up there? Do you go first or do you who go eighth? Who are the eight? judges? Who are the judges? Yeah. Um, is your story really on the nose? Yeah. Is it a night where there's someone who gets up there and tells a story that's so brilliant that nobody else should even buy? Like, yeah. it, you can't take these things seriously. It's just a game. And we all know that this is a device just to get people interested in, yeah. in, in really having skin in the game but I like the idea that the stakes are raised above just personal best but will people like me well like Sally Field says will they really like yeah. me you know and even though um, you know sometimes it's hard to get recognition in certain you know ways like being on a moth podcast or doing a main stage with them I'm fine with that I haven't because I know the audience really appreciates what I'm oh, doing yeah. and that's a really big part of it for me because I love like it's not about we don't do this for the money nobody's you know retiring wearing ermine and pearls because they tell stories it's you do it because you almost can't not do it yeah the same way a lot of stand-up comedians that i know and i know a lot of them from my old career and my new one they have to get out every night and do two or three sets somewhere it's yeah. almost like it's like runners who need to run you know yeah it's like some sort of hormone gets released and if they don't do it they get very blue I, and that's kind of how i feel about telling stories you have to do it have to do it like if i don't if I go for a whole week with maybe just one or two shows, I start feeling like I need to, my melatonin uptake is off or whatever the expression. Now you say that if I go a week without more than one or two shows, and I know so many storytellers, I mean, New York has a thriving storytelling scene. That's true. But if you look at the big, like the big, big shows of note, and you do the math, doing one or two shows a week is a lot of shows. Like, you perform a lot now yeah, I probably in work invited like, context. Yeah, I think I, yeah. I'm, you know, booked on shows, you yeah. know, which don't necessarily pay money, but I do shows probably between four and five nights a week. What is it, I mean, A, just in general, what, how would you describe to someone interested in telling stories on the scene in New York, how would you describe, like, the gigging aspect of it, especially in relation to stand-up? And what is that gigging like for you as someone who sort of, had this whole career where you very much helped people gig in a big right, way right. for commercials for to be noticed and even before you were an agent you were out on the auditions and yeah I you know I think you know. I think part of it is understanding that the people that run these shows take this very seriously yeah. that they are definitely not just sort of you know doing it you know with just a, a weak hand in the game they yeah. really do take it so it's not casual for them yeah. so I treat all the people who run these shows um, with a lot of respect because yeah. I do it's not false I do respect them so I always tell younger storytellers that are just starting out the first respectful thing you can do if you want to learn about what shows are out there in any city is go to them. Is go to them. <laughs> it, Don't request to be on someone's show to me without many, going. Yeah, yeah. When I mean, I that seems so basic. Oh, all the time. When Cammy and I produced, go. ask me. We would get these emails from people being like, "Hey, I've heard your show's great. I'd love to be on it next next Wednesday." 
And it doesn't work that it, way. It's crazy. No, it doesn't. Have respect. Yeah. Show up. Show up and show respect for the people who run that show and the people that are in the show. Because have you ever done a show that you've never seen because you've been asked and gotten yes. there and realized yes. as you're preparing to tell that you're like, hmm, I might have to reconfigure. Well, I'll tell like, you one quick story. Yeah. This was sort of a shit show. I, um, you know, I've been doing it a while already, and so I was kind of like in the groove, and I wasn't... I mean, there are nights when I, de I, get, I definitely get very nervous because yeah. either the lineup is really strong or the venue is crazy or and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this story isn't that great. I'm going to bomb. But there's one particular night I was feeling, I didn't even think about it because the guy who ran the show requested a very specific story about a chorus line, uh -huh. the story where I wind up mugging a kid. And it's a right. good story, but it's a specific story for a specific, I mean, it went really well when I did it for PBS in Boston at WBGH Studios where yeah. the average age was about 45. But this this was at the Big Black Pat, Cat Pussy, the Big Black Pussycat, which is own. It's part of um, the Comedy Cellar, yeah. so it's a comedy club. And even though it was considered a storytelling event, I was basically the only. It was Judah Friedlander, Michelle Buteau, DC Benny was the host, and me, and a few other people. So I was definitely the weakest link. I didn't belong there. Oh, and DC it. and I are old friends, and right. he's such a sweet man so sweet and he said I definitely want you to do the show are you free I said great I get there and there are all these people in the audience and I know right away it's like douche city tinder dates nobody over 30 mostly men they're drunk and I know right away I've made a very large mistake I have no business being here and I started thinking how am I going to change the story like what do I do now yeah these people don't know what a chorus line even is, nor do they care. And I knew when they saw me, they would think I was like Karen from HR. It's like, why <laughs> is my aunt Sylvia on that stage? Like, I knew it. And so when I got out there, I had no choice. I went first, which was even worse. I went first. So crickets, you could hear the crickets like chirping. <laughs> and they were so polite, which is the death, it's the death knell if you're in a comedy club and they're polite, because it means that they think you're so bad, they feel sorry for you, they don't even heckle you. Yeah. So when I got off the stage and there was that like golf clap, and then when the other comic said, great set, that was it, I knew. That's like the oh. worst thing. When they say that, it's it like, oh, you it are so yeah. bad, you are so oh, bad. No. And, I, and I went home that night, I thought I'll never, ever go outside again. Oh. Never mind, perform, I won't leave the house. Oh. And and of course, I get an email or a text like two days later from TV saying, thank you so much. That was really great. I hope you come back. So now whether or not he meant it, it didn't matter. He made me feel so much better. Yeah. And it was just not the right. Like, it is really important to know your audience. But I now I have this new rule for myself. Mm -hmm. I always have three stories prepared wherever I go, no matter yeah. what I've told the host I'm going to tell. Yeah. And I look very carefully at the audience. I really observe. And I decide when I get there which one's going to work. Because if I think I have to explain everything, I'm not gonna tell that story. And I have some stories that are much either funnier or more contemporary, and others, you know, are just more appropriate for an audience that's older. And I just, so I try to rework it. You have well, to be flexible. You know, one of the things that you do that I really appreciate, and this is something we've talked about in class or workshops, you know, as someone uh, that came in to storytelling later, you would have reference points or jokes that I'm in my early 40s, right? and I feel pretty aware of media pretty far back. Right. So you could make a joke in reference like Ernest Borgnine or That's something, right. and that would like lay me on the floor cackling. Yeah. But then we would have a talk and it would come up more and more where you would be like, oh, what if I tell this story in this context for this audience? And you develop this thing over time where you sort of made those jokes, I mean, maybe this is conscious or maybe not, yeah. 
it seems like those jokes are kind of bulletproof now because you'll lay the Ernest Borgnine reference, but then you'll add an additional, yeah. like, universal right. parallel. Well, is that a thing you, know, you the, think I about? Think, well, I think part of it is because I've done my homework and I'm not like, I remember the God all day. <laughs> I don't only do that. Like, I really follow everything. Yeah. So I read a lot and I watch a lot. Yeah. And I love television, and I'm proud of it. So I know, you know, about Cardi B as well as I know about Gwen Verdon. It doesn't matter. Like, I know, you know, maybe I don't know every hip-hop artist, but I know enough where I can converse with my kids and I can converse with people in their teens and 20s about things that they know because the same way a comedian goes to a new town and learns from the locals what's yeah. important to the locals as you know as a host yeah. when you go to different cities you do your homework you find out what interests them what's their favorite food is there a restaurant they all go to what's their team you know what's the best sport is it hockey is it baseball so i'm always make sure and it's not pandering it's just doing my homework because again what totally. i said earlier you want your audience to feel like you're taking care of them that yeah, you're having yeah. fun with them and they're having fun with you and that it's not a stretch for them to understand what's going on. Totally. I, mean, I think yeah. that's a big part of it. So I yeah, love I, I love that homework. shorthand that you can establish. I was just I just hosted a main stage in San Antonio with the moth. And I'm from San Antonio, so you already have the leg up. But even when I go to Ann Arbor or wherever, I do try to connect for like a day. And it's in San important. Antonio, it was so fun because I got to make the joke about anyone to Jim's restaurant lately. Um, I got to make a joke about the Riverwalk. I got to make, yeah. you know. And don't they love that? They Oh, they do. They love being like, oh, you're one of us. And it's so funny because when you're there, you know, I'm hosting a show with three storytellers that aren't from there and the right. producer of The Moth. And I can tell she's enjoying herself. Hi, Catherine, if Catherine Burns is listening. But she's also looking at me like, I'm not sure what he's talking about, but, but I she, guess but it's but working. She knew that. You know? and I she think, knows that you're taking care of it. And I think that's yeah. a big part of connecting. You know, and with the time, I always, in terms of the age and generation difference, you know, I teach, you know, I teach storytelling a lot, and sometimes I teach teenagers. And for me, it's The Wizard of Oz is the thing that's slipping away. It's a, the Wizard of Oz is such a great teaching tool because if you're talking about like intros and inciting incidents, right. it's literally black and white square. And then the tornado happens. Right. Happens. It's the inciting incident. Everything's color, and like increasingly, I'll go and I'll I'll ask a group of teenagers. I'm like, hey, you've all seen The Wizard of Oz, right? And then like a third of them won't raise their hands. It's amazing. And I want to call like social services on their parents. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's just kind of like, oh shit, like that will soon be a device, a narrative, that's just. Yeah. going away. It's I know. crazy. It's so sad. I know. It's such a good But movie. one of the things that I'm hopeful about is that this whole community of storytelling, mm -hmm. as opposed to anything else, has become so much more mainstream. Yeah. And I mean, every time I've seen you either host or help coach those high school students in the moth program, I'm always so optimistic that there's yeah. this whole new generation of young people that aren't afraid to tell their stories in a way that's not always that comfortable or easy, yeah. and that they're doing it and learning about it in a much more mainstream way than we never had this. You know, it's like a really cool thing. Yeah. So I, I have a lot of hope for the future in just watching Me how too. it's evolving. Te teaching those is great because, you know, I mean, I my memoir is all about me at that age, you know? And my memoir, when I was 16, I was a mess and skipping out of school and taking acid. And granted, those kids exist now, but it's so great to 
teach those kids storytelling where I think if I had had that at that age, because mm-hmm. a lot of the kids I teach, I've sat across from 15 year olds like as recently as a year ago who pointed at my Doc Martin boots and they had Doc Martins and they like yeah, gave like me a that, thumbs up. Right. Like there is this, there's still that bad kid That's in that right. community. That That's kid right. with the pierced tongue that listens to sad music and is polyamorous and wears a dog collar. But I think if I or a lot of my friends had had storytelling as a tool to express themselves, I don't, I think it would have had a, an outlet. Yeah. Absolutely. And now I I'm feel sure like that's do. true. I'm absolutely yeah. sure that was true. And I mean, I think that when I, I mean, even comedy was so kind of a young thing, especially yeah. for women when I was in my teens. But all of these outlets, you know, that are more kind of off mid center range of what people expect of what's entertainment provides for young adults a way to really be creative and find ways to have a voice, let off steam. Um, find new friends that might not be in the mainstream so they don't have to worry about being bullied as much and sharing their feelings in a safe space. Yeah. And that's like a real gift. And yeah. I know the moth has really been great about that. I mean, you, that's why I love like, watching those kids. You've in, di- you've in different contexts. You've taught young people, you've taught elderly people, that's and correct. you've worked with prisoners too, That's right? correct. Yeah, women's how, Correctional Facility. How, how was that for you uh, as a teacher, mentor? Well, I have to say... I. I, I know this sounds crazy, but my favorite group of people to work with are the women in the correctional facility yeah. because they are just pure-hearted, open, honest, so honest and raw, and there's no screening, and they don't care how they're being judged. There's no, there's none of that. It's all stripped away because they are at their rawest. They are yeah. in a situation that they didn't plan on being in, that they don't want to be in, uh, they're incarcerated, and some of them for 10 years or more. Um, so they are just the most honest, pure part of themselves. And it's a beautiful thing to be around because they're, through the grace of God and just a little bit of luck, I'm not on the other side, you know, in mm-hmm. there with them. You know, I always think that when I leave there that just all of us are one. We cannot deny that we're all just a mistake or two away from a situation that could put us in the same place these women are in. Yeah. Do you know, it's just... You know, they had bad luck. They made some poor choices. Uh, Things did not go in their way, and they just got in trouble, and they couldn't stop it for one reason or another. And they have brilliant, beautiful stories, and a lot of their stories are no different than our stories about love, about family, about desertion, loss. They're our stories. They are us. And the compassion that we need to show these people even under, you know, these dire circumstances, and a lot of them were incarcerated for a while, will help them it humanizes all of us and it helps them get to be their very best. And the way I always make fun of myself saying I do things as if my life depends on it, their life depends on it too. And it's a beautiful thing. We're putting on a little presentation for their cellmates and hopefully some family in like in a month or so from now. And I just am so honored that I get to watch these lovely women be honest and tell their stories and be so vulnerable and be so brave. It's it's really cool. They're very lucky to have you. It's cool. They're I, so I, cool. I love them. I kind of want to like oh, sneak in. Just I just love them. Look, raise my voice in a wig and say I'm here. I love them. Do well, we, you're invited to come if you pass the FBI uh, clearance. Oh, oh no, I mean I want to get in the jail to be instructed by oh, you. Oh well, mean. anytime we can. <laughs> you can always come along. I'll put you in a in a. In, they wear khakis. I'll put you in khakis. Oh, just hide yeah. me like a cake file. Oh, yes. In the, in, or file. Well, we go cake. through so many security Do checks you? when we get there. Oh my goodness. They once sent me away because I had a hole in my jeans. I wasn't. No. Yes, it was against regulations. I wasn't allowed to go in. I was so embarrassed. 
I felt, God. you know, like you feel like you really didn't yeah. do your homework. I thought, oh, God, I'm so stupid. How could I have forgotten that? Because they, they told us, and I just forgot. Well, they say they have weird rules. I remember I, so when I was in high school, I had a crush on a guy named Kyle who was an acid dealer. Kyle? And he got, oh, he was so hot. He was kind of like a muscly, dirty, patchouli, stinking hippie. Oh, Everything sounds, I loved when I was, yeah. Sounds very attractive. Very hot. And he went to jail for dealing drugs in New Braunfels. And I went to visit him. And I was like a teenage. He was straight, Did by the way. Did you try to bring him chocolates or something? I was desperately pursuing him. I just razor thought, blades in the chocolate? I, <laughs> no, I didn't bring him anything. I was like a horny 16-year-old. And I was caught up in the romance of like, right, right. I like a guy who might be bisexual and he's in jail. And I went to the jail. And I remember going in there and just saying my name. Like, I'm here for Kyle. And them kind of being like, okay, we need your ID. Yeah, it's a whole thing. They have to clear you. Are you on the list? And I was like, a list? I, I mean, I was You didn't know. Ridiculous. Yeah, you didn't know. Because he had important people, like probably the woman who well, was Well, you could have gone as long as you, you know, had an appointment, yeah. like in advance. But when I was waiting, I actually saw several different women in that room swap clothes, like either share a sweater or dig into a bag. And when it happened when I was young, when I was younger, I was like a teenager, I didn't know what it was. And later I would realize that they had either shown up in right. the hole in the jeans. That's right. Their side of their breast was exposed That's to a right. tank top, like yeah. whatever. And they were like yeah. sharing clothes, like helping each other That's out. That's right. Instructors are sent home if the blouse is too low cut. Wow. You know, they're, they're very particular. And you're right. As one of, the, one of the students in your class, I think it was Deepa, told a story about going to visit a friend in prison and someone didn't have the right arms on oh, her yeah. sleeve. She and had she, like, someone had yeah, to lend a sweater. Like a yeah, yeah, yeah. They're oh, very Deepa. picky about that stuff. Yeah. Um, so what are you doing next? Like, what do you, like, no, when I say next, I mean the immediate, but, like, we're in the early part of 2018. What are you, what are you doing this, this next well, year? Well, I'm going to continue what I'm doing now, which is writing mm -hmm. and performing, and I've been doing a lot more hosting, which I love. I love hosting, and I want to keep doing that. Um, I'm also the subject of a documentary. So I have this lovely guy, Frank Rui, who follows me around, Aww. and he shoots me. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to turn out. I'm nervous I'm going to be the queen of Versailles, that he's just going <laughs> to, because I really don't know like the log line, like what this is going to be. But I, I don't know why he finds me interesting, but he does. So there's that. And I'm also working on a possible book deal, which is uh -huh. sort of under wraps, but we'll see. So I have a lot going on. It's I just not under wraps. No, no, I'm kidding. It's, I'm there's like, like, it's got cellophane on it. Um, so I don't have a deal yet, but I'm working on that. I'm working on the proposal with somebody. So, you know, so I've got a lot of things. But I really, my favorite thing is to just perform. Yeah. I love performing. I like traveling. I do a lot of performances outside of New York. I love that. Yeah. Um, I'm also trying to be more adjacent to comedy. So I don't want to be a stand-up comedian, but I want to do more shows that are more comedy-driven. Yeah, you're hosting that's really Wom uh, my Women of Letters? Thing. Well, Women of Letters is I'm hosting because Sophie is going to be away on her book tour. Yeah. Um, so I'm that's more of... Um, have you been to that show? It's wonderful. Yeah, it's uh, at City Winery. And it's basically reading letters. The subject for the show I'm doing is um, Sorry Not Sorry, I think. So it's That's stories about Sandy things. Marks. Yes, it's so perfect. And I'm going to tell stories about my horrorish teens and what it was like growing up in the 80s before we were worried about getting sick with diseases and stuff. So, um, and great. it's basically a, a Dear John letter to, you know, me, you know, like that person wants to know why I haven't like phoned in lately, you know, because I had a life and I raised a family and I raised them in the suburbs. I'm no longer a harlot. 
a hua, <laughs> not a hua. A hua. So, uh, but there'll be wonderful people in the show, and I'm really excited. That's about awesome. It. Yeah. And where can we find out more about you? Where do we go? Well, my website, which I'm unfortunately, as much as I I'm all talk about spending my life doing this like it's real serious business, I never updated. But my website is Sandy J Marks M A R X like Groucho dot com, and it has all my upcoming dates when I remember to update them, which I need to do. Um, and it also has some of my videos and um, podcasts and stuff that I've been on, like Risk and um, all sorts of great shows, like Yum's the Word and Story Collider, which I love. Um, and uh, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm just, or as they say in the 80s, I'm going to keep on trucking, baby. <laughs> was that an 80s thing? <laughs> trucking, baby? When you were Pat Benatar's ass double? Yes. Was that what they said? Did you see me on Harry Connick Jr. Yes, you were last Harry week? Connick. I mean, if you would have told me when I met you. Is that hysterical? That a few years later. Harry Connick Jr. would be like freestyling an improv about song about you being a Pat Benatar ass double. I mean, that was when I knew. I felt as a as a coach instructor like, that I what? made it. That that's was right. what I was like. It's like this is it. Well, that's an example of how a silly little story can have real legs. Yeah. No pun intended. They really can. Yeah. It's uh, like you tell a story and. If you well, one of the other stories that you helped me work on was the one that I did on that PBS show, Stories oh, from yeah. the Stage. Yeah. It was the story about me mugging a kid. I have to say, still to date, I've been doing this for four years, which isn't a long time, but still, some of my best, most requested stories for gigs are the ones that you worked on with me. You don't have to kid. You don't it's have true. to blow sunshine. Cause it's you're true. On the show. I'm blowing smoke up your ass because it's true. If they were all you, Sandy Marks, my it's job true. would be so it's easy. True. You're Aww, so great. I love you. Thank you for doing the show. Thank you, Yoda. <laughs> I love you. I love you, too. We're on your couch having wine. That's Just right. Just to totally break the illusion of anything professional. No. Socks. Only socks. No yep. shoes. Lots of wine. Yeah. yeah. And tequila. Yeah, we're going to go down and have more tequila. Yes. Bye, you guys. Oh, before you go, uh, if you are a storyteller or memoirist looking for personal coaching in a group or online setting, or if you're a business looking to utilize storytelling to expand your professional horizons, find out more about working with me at www.crablab.com. That's crab with two Bs, because that's my last name, and lab also with two Bs. Do you see what I did there? You get it because my name has two Bs, so I put, even though it's not right, there's two, okay, you get it? Okay, no, it's fine, okay, bye-bye.